all of you for joining us today in the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective ongoing repeated, repeated, repeated reading of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, we're on our second pass-through. Really excited to have a whole bunch of new avatars, faces, Discord users, whatever it may be, and we're very glad that you're joining us. Uh, we're going to skip announcements today. We did them yesterday. The short version of announcements, I'm just going to, because we have so many, we're just going to uh, push you up to the calendar channel. Please check up all of the other discussions and readings that are happening. I know we're restarting Zizek. I believe it's tomorrow. Our lit group has readings uh, this weekend. Bergson, uh, Foucault was yesterday. It was great. Please uh, poke around the server and check out everything else we're doing. Uh, today's reading, though, is going to be focused on section 1.2 of Anti-Oedipus, where we discuss the body without organs. This feels a bit like uh, our long-term discussion yesterday, which uh, recording of, it's up on the podcast if you want to uh, take a reading through, where we literally just talked about the body without organs and trying to explain it. I have a feeling we're going to repeat a great deal of what we said yesterday as we get through this. So we're going to uh, dive in. Uh, an apparent conflict arises between desiring machines and the body without organs. Every coupling of machines, every production of a machine, every sound of a machine running becomes unbearable to the body without organs. Beneath its organs, its senses, there are larvae and loathsome worms and a god at work messing it all up or strangling it by organizing. The body is the body. It is all by itself. Has no need of organs. The body is never an organism. Organisms are the enemies of the body. Uh, from our toad. I'm sure Jack will have much to say about in a moment. Merely so many nails, piercing the flesh, so many forms of torture. In order to resist organ machines, the body without organs presents its smooth, slippery, opaque, taut surface as a barrier. In order to resist linked, connected, and interrupted flows, it sets up a counterflow of amorphous, undifferentiated fluid. Mm -mm. In order to resist using words composed of articulated phonetic units, it utters only gasps and cries that are sheer, unarticulated blocks of sound. We are of the opinion that what is ordinarily referred to as primary repression means precisely that. It is not a counter-cathexis, but rather this repulsion of desiring machines by the body without organs. This is the real meaning of the paranoiac machine. The desiring machines attempt to break into the body without organs, and the body without organs repels them, since it experiences them as an overall persecution apparatus. Thus we cannot agree with Victor Tausk when he regards the paranoiac machine as a mere projection of a person's own body, and the genital organs. The genesis of the machine lies precisely here, in the opposition of the process of production the desiring machines, and the non-productive stasis of the body without organs. The anonymous nature of the machine and the non-differentiated nature of its surface are proof of this. Projection enters the picture only secondarily, as does counter-investment, as the body without organs invests a counter-inside or counter-outside in the form of a persecuting organ or some exterior agent of persecution. But in and of itself, the paranoiac machine is merely an avatar of the desiring machines. It is a result of the relationship between the desiring machines and the body without organs, and occurs when the latter can no longer tolerate these machines. Because what we really want is to start with just an incredibly difficult paragraph. That's really where we start this reading. So, uh, as we discussed uh, in the first section, 
their concept of desiring machines exists as this idea that everything that is partial objects, which is lips, tongue, anus, mouth, lungs, hair, whatever it may be, a book, banana, microphone, computer, discord, your ears, your brain, all of that. Uh, the connections between all of these different things is really where we start to find how the psyche works, how our unconscious works. It is machinic. All of these connections are constantly being made. The idea of the body without organs exists in a slightly different place where the desiring machines, as they function, produce the body without organs. Not directly, but it is a thing that happens as desiring machines are created. This first paragraph is about building on this, about building on this concept and starting to talk about exactly where the body without organs exists, which is not a simple topic we spent Two hours on it yesterday, I think by the end we started to get to a good place, but uh, it, is, it is not an easy to say the least. So I just want to start there and then I want to open it up to anyone who wants to give a commentary on anything happening within this paragraph or this entire page. Page. God damn, it's a page. I'll actually pose a question to um, our friend Ken and his um, uh, marvelous psycho psychological experience. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction to what they mean by cathetsis? And to help you out, I believe uh, the translators say, we have adopted this term throughout, except when quoting directly from psychoanalytic literature, because it renders more faithfully the meaning of investment, which in French does service in libidinal as well as political economy. We have likewise chosen to translate investor as to invest instead of to cathet. So, would you help us understand cathetsis a little bit? I mean, you can almost uh, replace the word cathexis with investment. Um, but what cathexis implies is a um, that, that's a little bit more than investment, I guess, is a, uh, uh, what's the word? It starts with a C. It carries over something of the area in which it was first invested in into the other area in which it's invested in. So, um, so in Freud's Beyond the Pleasure Principle, um, he described um, trauma as a sort of uh, break in this the... I guess if I'm going to put a Lacanian twist on it, the symbolic protective shield or the protective shield of language and the ability to identify and articulate something. Like he talks all about how like a wound without an object is harder to deal with than a wound that has no object. Um, so in this way, he sort of brings about the language of internal and external. And he says that a trauma is like a hypercathexis um, outside this boundary and a hypocathexis inside this boundary. So it's like you get a a low uh, a level of high pressure on the outside and a level of low pressure on the inside, and that like um, like quote unquote pathological reactions, like panic attacks and something like this, are attempts to uh, defend against the hypercathexis inside the system. So then you project what's inside the system, outside the system, in an, in an attempt to use that protective shield as if 
what's going on inside is outside. And, and if I'm not uh, drastically mistaken, the way Freud talks about cathexis, which is hedonal uh, energy being invested in a single object, single thing, concept, and countercathexis being uh, sort of like the opposing force of that, uh, it comes from the ego, is how he talks about it. The ego or superego, uh, wish repression, so cathexis or countercathexis in line with that is what is imposed. Uh, whereas Deleuze and Guattari are talking about, they're like, no, actually, what is a problem here is it's not so much that you have uh, ego or the superego who are fixated on singular things. It's the nature of the desiring machine, connections and things that are making it uh, are by nature opposed to the body without organs. As we discussed yesterday, the, the sort of simple way to think of the body without organs is I removed all of the desiring machines that make you. I removed all your organs, including your skin, your eyes, everything. You would, there was, there's still a you that I could talk about, even if I removed all of those things. Now, that's not a thing that's actually driven by any specific desiring machines or need or need to shit or need to fuck or whatever it may be. But that's, there's still a thing there, and that's the body without organs. Well, by nature, that thing, which is a very sort of uh, inert but stable surface uh, that all of the things you do get recorded on, by nature are really, it, that thing is really not a fan of this idea of new connections and desiring machines being, because it essentially fucks with it. The idea of new desiring machines by nature fuck with the body without organs, because it's always seeking something new, it's always pushing for something new. Uh, so in that moment what's happening is it's not so much that your ego is repressing, but it's that the nature of the body without organs is repulsive to desiring machine, is how I, how I read this paragraph. Hmm. So by this characteristic of uh, repulsion, could we characterize the body without organs as some sort of analogous to the real in Lacan, or maybe the category of secondness in purse, like this category of the real when something collides with the existence of something other before being um, before reducing it to concepts or stuff like that because if it would be uh, then internalized in this sense or organized in in the system or in its scope it would be then part of its reach and become um, desiring machined in this way so let's set up some juxtaposition here because there's a lot happening right here, especially with psychology, right? So the body without organs, I don't think would be like the Lacanian real here. Um, and part of what's happening here, right, is that this is becoming a very impersonal psychology. More importantly, they're talking about the unconscious um, in a completely different sense, uh, particularly than, than I think Freud intended, or at least originally intended, I guess. We could talk about that, but so like what when Ken was talking about like um, this barrier being formed and all that, you can see this is in contrast to the body without organs because the recording surface and the the act of repulsion here, uh, it's not in forms of a protection in that normal sense, like a protection of the ego or anything like that. So in this sense, it's a, they're reworking cathexis here, and they're moving into investment which is going to take us into memory and a whole host of other things that are ultimately going to be recorded upon the body without organs. So here we're looking at um, how desiring machines are breaking into the 
are trying to break into the body without organs and how the body without organs repulses them and why it's doing that and what happens when it does that, which is the, which is in part that it's reported. What's interesting about that parallel of the boundary with the body without organs, with the way that Freud talks about it in uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, is that it's like an amalgamation of like um, inorganic material. Like you have this organic growth, and then uh, I guess in this case you could say coding or uh, deterritorializing, reterritorializing makes the the sort of moving organic living material now inert and sort of like this dead crust um and that sort of reminds me of how the body without organs has this like zero intensity or whatever but i don't quite understand that just yet but yeah it does sound clearly different um but they're both concerned with ontogenesis in the end i think right i think that uh one way to think about this is that in Logic of Sense, uh, Deleuze uh, talks about this surface between sense and nonsense, which is kind of like the surface of the unconscious. And uh, and so when when you think of that, you know, uh, the body, um, you know, that surface, you know, is like the skin around the body. So so the so he's kind of uh, going from just saying that there's a surface to say the surf it's a surface of things, and then that unconscious is uh, within that surface, so within the body. And his use of intensity with the body without organs, we had this question yesterday. I didn't have an answer for it, so I kind of rabbit hole. Um, in difference and repetition and in logical sense, Deleuze uses the term intensity to describe um, things that we are mostly unable to perceive separation in, even though there is difference. Uh, an example uh, would be uh, blue, the color blue. There are lots of ways to talk about the color blue, but if I show you 20 different colors of blue, we can have a conversation, try to analyze it, but there, there's layers of intensity in the way that we perceive them, brightness, things like that, that aren't directly measurable example but I'm trying to trying to make it really simple to sort of talk through but the idea of a zero intensity is ultimately the idea that there is uh, it, it doesn't ever have difference it doesn't have the idea of difference or becoming is not something that the body without organs is capable of because differences are when they're pure and we start talking about the simplistic differences of moment-to-moment -moment perception that's what Deleuze is referring to as intensities. It's really an interesting way that they talk about the BWO essentially has no ability to have becoming, which is kind of a, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it was, it's just really interesting to sort of dive into their use of intensity throughout uh, writing. I think a good analogy is the Mandelbrot set. Um, because the, the imaginary plane is like a surface where everything is disconnected from everything else. But within that, there is the Mandelbrot set, which is uh, a mathematical object, almost infinite, uh, if not infinite, extent, that you zoom in to, to find all of this detail, self-similar detail. But 
but the key point is that uh, the way you get the Mandelbrot set is by uh, using these particular equations and repeating them. And it's the acceleration of the uh, of the of the points as you as you repeat them that that actually uh, represents the intensity. And so and so you can see a Mandelbrot set as a as a plane of intensities where the intensities are in, infinitely deep. And so and so that you know that might be a good analogy for like what a line of flight is and what what we mean by intensity and what we mean by surface. I think the big thing here is that we need to understand what's happening with the paranoiac machine in relation to desiring machines in the body without organs, right? Projection enters the picture only secondarily, as does counterinvestment. As the body without organs invests a counter inside or a counter outside in the form of a persecuting organ or some exterior agent of persecution. So the body without organs is making a paranoiac investment into the um into the organs or the desiring machines here. They continue, but in and of itself, the paranoiac machine is merely an avatar of the desiring machines. It is a result of the relationship between the desiring machines and the body of the organs, and occurs when the latter can no longer tolerate these machines. I suppose it's kind of um, the, the thing which is nearest to it is the phonetics, right? that um, the, the phonetics of um, the uh, uh, desiring machines um, start to um, basically infiltrate or like interact with the organ machines and um, the, that is basically the thing in between that like the, the, the line which, um, um, which is the borderline between or in between uh, the both phonetics um, is the paranoiac machine so it's paranoiac because basically it summarizes two kind of phonetics which makes it um paranoia paranoiac well the those phonetic that so that phoneticization that they're talking about that's the body with the organs react um i shouldn't say necessarily reacting that's the body of the organs interacting with the desiring machines yes but i i, I think that the desiring machines also have a phonetics uh, uh, for phonetic structure i think um, they're not exclusive i i, I or, or maybe i misread it but um, i think like both outlines are eventually uh, culminating in uh, a phonetics which um, makes it more um, easy to um, magnify you know because it's basically the same structure phonetic structure um, sort of. I, I, I see what you're getting at. In order to resist using words composed of articulated phonetic units, it, uh, it the body of the organs, utters only gasps and cries that are sheer unarticulated blocks of sound. So there's a difference happening here in terms of like articulated phonetic units and the body without organs using unarticulated sound. Yeah, I, I think like the, the cries and gasps um, are more or less um like um the 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 result of like different phonetic structures going at it so um the the i think it's like the like the white blood cells uh, i suppose in um a human body 
uh, which um, repels um, well a virus or um, uh, an illness basically um, but it, it is still a cell so like phonetics are still a cell but you have like the body without organs uh, kind of phonetics and the, then you have the paranoiac machine who also uh, uses phonetics which result in like this sound this um, this crying and gasping and um, and maybe moaning you know about um, about the the phonetic maybe I'm focusing too much on the war machine but maybe on the so some sort of war that is going on between them or conflict I suppose so the one thing I will say is that because and, and we go back to the idea of intensities here BWO by nature of having zero intensities wouldn't it sounds phonetic units that it utters are not going to be anything that is meaningful to any of us in any semblance of any structure or structure that they're a part of. And they are a virtual potential, uh, which is a kind of tough thing to sort of talk through. Uh, let me read a, a short thing. Uh, they're not units of language proper since they are undifferentiated. That is, they lack a position in the differential structure of language. They alert us to the reality of the virtual, in this case, the virtual of the body, or the BWO. Since these gasps or cries pry the mouth away from the energy machine, this language, send the mouth in the direction of the BWO. The then says to the mouth, you do a lot of talking, but is that all you can do? I bet you can do a bit more. Let's find out. This, this, uh, the, the nature of the BWO being a slippery surface, I think, pushes uh, people a little bit to have uh, disconnections. The, the idea that the BWO is a bad thing necessarily isn't there. We need to make sure that that's clear. Uh, the BWO offer, operates essentially to uh, help break connections, uh, because desiring machines love being connected to things, and they've kind of connected to sort of forever. Uh, so the ability to have those connections broken is really important. Uh, one of the questions we had, sorry, go ahead and I'm sure you have a comment, Jack, sorry. Uh, before I move on. Well, it says very well put, um, because that's the, that's the trick with the articulation. It's not fitting into the, um, it's not fitting the linguistics that way. So this would be like into done with the judgment of God, where Arto is using glossalia, right? Sounds that don't fit into language proper in this sense. So articulation is not happening because it's not the articulation of, um, of the linguistic uh, in that sense. Um, the other thing I wanted to hit real quick, too, is uh, before we move into that question. Um, we are of the opinion that what is ordinarily referred to as primary repression means precisely that. It is not a counterkathesis, but rather this repulsion of desiring machines by the body without organs. So there's a huge move here because they're, they're, kind of, uh, they're, doing, they're doing a lot here with psychoanalysis. But the big thing here is to understand that this is what they're talking about with um, with the paranoiac machine. It's the repulsion of desiring machines from the body without organs. And Burtz is 100% right. This does not fit into a model of good and evil. Yeah, and I because I want to go back. Uh, I'm going to try to pronounce your name. St. I'm going to guess that's the name. St. Uh, asked a question saying, uh, how is it the body of organ without organs can reject? Does it not imply some sort of desire, if not even if negative? So the answer is yes, absolutely. 
but it, I, I think uh, saying that it implies a desire on behalf of the BWO, that's, there's a nuance I want to add there. Uh, the BWO exists within the realm of desire. It, it's, it's part of kind of how desire works in the unconscious. The, the way it actually functions, it has some, what you could call a semblance of agency, because it does have ways that it operates, but it doesn't have desire in the way that we're talking about it here, the libidinal energy, sort of a fount that that comes from, the passions, things like that, it doesn't exist in that sense. It has stuff it does. Yes, it's part of the process, and it's almost apparatus sorts. Uh, but it has... It feels like it has some kind of mind of its own, but it's because it's actually zero intensities. It's it's a really unique thing because of that zero intensities and it's sort of impossibility of becoming or changing. By nature, it's going to affect things it touches. So it's a it's a really unique uh, concept. Yeah. So actually, this would be a great place to go if anyone's reading. Uh, uh, so the BWO's desire is not born from an ego. The BWO does not have an ego itself. In fact, uh, nothing in Deleuze, as far as I know, feel free to correct me, there's no such thing as the ego. What we are is just a collection of desiring machines that seem to come together in the form of a brooks that is constantly brooksing. Uh, and desiring machines, there's no, uh, as we talked about yesterday, there is no central thing. An ego is a very central concept. That all of your ideas and concepts come from your thoughts, your desires. And for Deleuze, it's like, no, there's a million tiny little machines that are making up Brooks. And when they connect to his desk, when they connect to Jack, there's a million other machines. There's no central point. And the BWO is definitely not. Yeah, I, I appreciate the parallel because, right, desiring production is like stands in juxtaposition of the id. So I, I see where you're going, right? Wouldn't the body without organs, if it functions as linking desiring production and anti-production and its functionality be like an ego? Uh, the answer is no, it's not like an ego in that sense uh, for those reasons and because um, its job isn't exactly to do that kind of function that the ego typically serves, right, to satisfy the id. Um, the other thing I need to mention is be uh, because we're talking about the ego, we'll see later on, I believe in chapter two, they're going to talk about like, um, I believe it's like a circular ego in the sense that there's and this is going to uh, this is going to stand in contradistinction from how we normally understand the ego. It's like an ego is moving through um, all these connections, and this is forming this is part of subjectivity, so the third synthesis. But the main thing I'm getting at here is that that would be gesturing towards subjectivity in this sense, and what the body without organs produces, and that's important because it is it is definitely not an ego nor enabled by an ego. So. The thing that I'm, I, as you were talking, I'm, I love reading this book, Eternal Readings of Anti-Oedipus. It's going to be six years from now. I'm going to be doing this fucking podcast where I'm going to be reading this goddamn chapter. I, the, the way I'm reading this right now, the, the interesting part is when they talk about the paranoiac machine, essentially they're trying to say that uh, the, the, whatever organ it may be, knows that it, it can be broken by the BWO, is looking for connections, tries to connect the BWO and the BWO is like no fuck off I don't connect I, I hate all of you and in that moment because essentially that dooms the desiring machine 
in the the paranoiac response to this is sort of the the fear of being shattered that that it's terrified and that causes that persecuting organ or exterior agent of uh, a persecution to be sort of created be very careful there. Hold on to that when they start talking about Judge Schraber and how there's the simultaneity I, I of the paranoia. I, I, just re- I just really like the, because we're literally talking about the moment that paranoia is created. Like, I really like, it's fascinating. So, okay. Uh, any, paranoia any last, as repulsion. <laughs> as repulsion from the BWO. It's really interesting. So, uh, any last questions on the first paragraph? Because uh, at this rate, this is going to take me 20 years to read this paragraph. So, um, I'm going to dive in. If we wish to have some idea of the forces that the body without organs exerts later on in the uninterrupted process, we must first establish a parallel between desiring production and social production. We intend such a parallel to be regarded as merely phenomenological. We are here drawing no conclusions whatsoever as to the nature and the relationship of the two productions, nor does the parallel we are about to establish provide any sort of a priori answer to the question whether desiring production and social production are really two separate and distinct productions. Its one purpose is to point out the fact that the forms of social production, like those of desiring production, involve an unengendered, non-productive attitude, an element of anti-production coupled with the process a full body that functions as a socius. The socius may be the body of the earth, that of the tyrant or capital. This is the body that Marx is referring to when he says that it is not the product of labor, but rather appears as its natural or divine presupposition. In fact, it does not restrict itself merely to opposing productive forces in and of themselves. It falls back on, you'll hear this term a lot, il il se rabat sur, I anglicize everything. Someone French will say it. Roger, are you here, please? Il, il se rabat sur. Yes. See, it sounds so much better when it's not me. All production, it falls back on all production, constituting a surface over which the forces and agents of production are distributed, thereby appropriating for itself all surplus production and arrogating to itself both the whole and the parts of the process, which now seem to emanate from it as a quasi-cause. Forces and agents come to represent a miraculous form of its own power. They appear to be miraculated by it. In a word, the socius as a full body forms a surface where all production is recorded, whereupon the entire process appears to emanate from this recording surface. Society constructs its own delirium by recording the process of production, but it is not a conscious delirium or rather is a true consciousness of a false movement, a true perception of an apparent objective movement, a true perception of the movement that is produced on the recording surface. Actually, not as complex a paragraph as it may come off. Uh, the, the conversation they're having here is now they're moving beyond the idea of just the body, just me, just Brooks, how Brooks Brooks is, and how my body without organs operates, and how my desirings may play within that. Again, nothing centralized, but it's they're moving beyond just the idea of the unconscious to talk about the idea of desiring machines moving into a new, I believe they will call it, uh, the, the, what is the secondary scale they talk about? Regime, I believe is the term they like to use, um, or the, the social machines. Uh, the idea that collectively now we start talking about how social machines things at, at large. 
And when we start talking about things at large, well, just like I have, my unconscious has a body without organs. Uh, there is a full body that is the society. Because there is also a society, there's also its own sort of body without organs, a full body that functions as a socius, but it has its own uh, sort of body without organs. In this case, we're talking about capital, but we will get in at some point that uh, there is the earth and the tyrant as their previous versions of this that they really go into. One part about this body without organs is because of the process of the entire thing. It uh, doesn't really produce anything. But what it does is because of the process of the entire thing, it uh, creates this illusion. It miraculates in a way that makes it seem as if it's producing. Money doesn't make money is the short sort of version I think I could give of this. There's no such thing as money making money, but it sure fucking seems like money makes money, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And that has a big implication for something like the MCM form, which I believe they talk about elsewhere. Yes, they do. Um, so when they're talking about that this is the body that Marx is referring to, when he says that it is not the product of labor, rather appears as its natural or divine presupposition, the, the critique of capital that Marx sort of came at. It's a really, uh, really interesting way to sort of twist that and bring that into psychoanalytic. The, the question was, what is, what is MCM? Uh, money makes commodities, which makes money. Uh, this, this sort of idea, again, that money makes money, money makes money. Money does thing, thing makes more money. Money circulates. Hey, there's a bunch more money that was made. That's all because of money. It's pretty incredible, this world we live in. When in reality, it's not that at all. It's a series of incredibly complex interactions that generally involve human labor and a bunch of other things. Yeah. Uh, any other comments or questions on this paragraph? To, to expand on that, and this is what they're getting at with quasi-cause. It's not that money actually directly causes this stuff. It's that money is conditioning it, and in this special way as associates, in the same way that the body without organs um, conditions and enables uh, what's happening with the with the connections and everything, right? What the the, the what the um, I'm going to use the term what the assemblage is doing is very much related to the body without organs in that sense. So when they use the term, uh, and we should probably go over it, the the concept of Robert Sur, which you'll hear people make jokes about, it's it's kind of memey, but the idea of falling back on all production. Uh, you need to think about, again, when we go back to the idea, their original, and we're talking sort of metaphorically here, their language is, I would say, poetic. I think, is that a fair way? Say it, it's not necessarily allegorical, it's not necessarily not true or not specific. It's, they like to use a little bit on the poetic side of things. And so when they talk about the falling back on, when production happens, if we were to just take a purely materialist view of literal moment to moment of how production operates within our society, at, at no point would we say that capital's super involved in that. But at large, we look at sort of the large-scale social machines, this sort of molar reality that we live in, it seems capital's doing that, capital's making this happen. When we say it falls back on, it's the, the impression, the false impression, the idea that it's the cause. And if you want examples of this, feel free to go into any Reddit thread in an economic of any sort, and you will see a million people say that the economy and capital is the literal cause behind all of this, because capital is able to fall back on, uh, take it over. Oh, you've done a thing? Excellent. That's now mine. 
because of how it works. They give a ton more examples, but that's kind of a short version. Anyone else want to expand? Uh, I would say something in French. Um, I'm not going to say it in French, but for the, the French understanding. So, so rabat sur, it's also in relation to the concept of the fold, le pli. And so, you know, it's another way of thinking the multiple between, you know, matter and concepts and semiotics and how everything is uh, intertwined in that matter. Yeah, and that's very important because falling back on production is not like, it's not like a self-referential problem or a problem of like um, first and second degree consciousness. What they're getting at is the body without organs uh, mirac uh, surface and it's miraculating surface in this sense. So right, what, what uh, the body without organs is, uh, how it interacts with desiring machines here, changes how uh, the functions and everything is distributed. So it's affecting the production process during the production process here. So exactly on, on this fold, you know, there's a transversal movement that is temporal in the sense that it folds one onto the other, but th this folding creates an effect on both layers that are being constituted by this folding. Exactly. They will give like, this is the thing. Like, I think there's literally two sections on it that really go in depth about how it operates and how it works. So we can dive in then. Uh, does that generally answer your question, though, how it works? Adric, I'm going to continue to the next paragraph. Yeah, for now. Uh, welcome to literally how I answer it usually. Yeah, no, I understand that for now. And then we're going to read another paragraph, and I'm going to not understand any. Capital. Sorry, Ben, go for it. Uh, let, me, let me adjust my Discord settings real quick. Uh, you're good. Jump in. I've, I just had to adjust you real fast on my side. Uh, in the first chapter, not chapter, section, it like talks about how the BWO is created within the third stage of the connective synthesis and kind of like launched by the process. Like it, it it's like articulated and then like in a hesitation, it's almost like let go. Uh, like a metaphor I see for like fall back on is literally the thing that's like kind of like launched up this like undifferentiated object all of a sudden crashes back down on the thing that launched it up and spreads the wreckage of that among its surface. Like like a giant, I don't know, like ball or something like don't, that's too specific, but like being launched up by an apparatus and then falling back down on the very thing that launched it and like the top layer of it just being completely destroyed and spread out fragmentarily among the surface of the body kind of um i think when they the, the whole the translation of falls back on i think is misleading and that's part of the reason the big thing is to understand that this miraculating surface is um is affecting production and the, these uh connections and everything are basically atop it um i'm going to continue to the next paragraph though uh, because it does it, it does get into these. Uh, capital is indeed the body without organs of the capitalist, or rather, the capitalist being. But as such, it is not only the fluid and petrified substance of money, or it will give to the sterility of money the form whereby money produces money. It produces surplus value, just as the body without organs reproduces itself, puts forth shoots and branches out to the farthest corners of the universe. It makes... 
It makes the machine responsible for producing a relative surplus value while embodying itself in the machine as fixed capital. Machines and agents cling so closely to capital that their very functioning appears to be miraculated by it. Everything seems objectively to be produced by capital as quasi-cause. As Marx observes, in the beginning, capitalists are necessarily conscious of the opposition between capital and labor, and of the use of capital as a means of extorting surplus labor. But a perverted, bewitched world quickly comes into being as capital increasingly plays the role of a recording surface that falls back on all production. Furnishing or realizing surplus value is what establishes recording rights. Quote, With the development of relative surplus value in the actual specifically capitalist mode of production, whereby the productive powers of social labor are developed, these productive powers and the social interrelations of labor in the direct labor process seem transferred from labor to capital. Capital thus becomes a very, becomes a very mystic being, since all of labor's social productive forces appear to be due to capital rather than labor as such, and seem to issue from the womb of capital itself. What is specifically capitalist here is the role of money the use of capital as a full body to constitute the recording or inscribing surface. But some kind of full body, that of the earth or the despot, a recording surface, an apparent objective movement, fetishistic, perverted reproduction world, are all are characteristic of all types of society as a constant of social reproduction. Yeah, I, I found um, the, the thing interesting here, basically the quote, um, uh, that you just uh, read uh, almost at the end of the paragraph. But um, if you like take the relationship uh, people have um, with surplus value, basically what they what they described that the body without org organs functions like they uh, said before, like some sort of surplus value. And then they explain uh, what kind of sur uh, surplus value or how how it differentiates from it. Like if you put like multiple uh, body without together, um, you'll get like um, a form of praxis, like um, a uh, relationship between um, between labor power. Um, and uh, I, I found that an interesting note uh, to make in regard of Marxist uh, rhetoric. And it's an, it's an interesting take on the, the sort of classic Marxist idea that uh, surplus labor as a concept exists where I make a thing as a laborer, uh, a capitalist owns the means of production ultimately, the surplus value that is created by my labor meeting such materials and then out comes a chair or for it. The capitalist is the one who takes that money. It's not seen as what it is, which is ultimately labor or a combination thereof or a thing that I have a right to. That it's part of why capital did what it did and how capital affects us. It's a really interesting switch on that. Yes, that's basically surplus value. The um, like the it, it's basically a form of um, magic or uh, some um, some uh, magic trick. You know that uh, when when um, surplus value comes into the, the mix, like. It's it's change it's it's basically a change a change of ownership um, between the laborer and the capitalist for um, no reason or for an obfuscated reason either way 
So uh, yeah, I, I I just agree with that, I suppose. Yeah. Um, the capital is the BWO of uh, not the capitalist, like the, their their usage of the word here, and they correct it very quickly. It's rather the capitalist being, not so much the literal capitalist. It's not that it's a body without organs of Jeff Bezos's capital. That's not it. It's the the conceptual capitalist, the capitalist being. Uh, the way that he lives and what he does and what they touch into as a capitalist, their body without organs is ultimately capital. Mm -hmm. And in this sense, this is a really important distinction as we're talking about social production right here. All right. Any other questions? And I'm going to dive into... Uh... Just one observation. Uh, furnishing or realizing surplus value is what establishes recording rights. Sorry, the body without organs or the associates here is um is working with production and creating surplus value now this is a little misleading here because they're they're going to clarify later on it's surplus value of code and with marxism right they're talking about surplus uh, value of labor and that there's not really i'm not going to go further in that distinction but the big thing here is to understand that what capital enables here um is the the ability to write to record upon the socius right so to affect um to affect the repulsion the miraculation and the attractions related to capital or to um the body of them to the socius here this is really critical because this affects social production and how social production proceeds so this is uh, what they mean when they they're talking about society produces its own delirium by recording itself this form of memory creates delirium. The body without organs now falls back on, say Rabat Sur, desiring production, attracts it and appropriates it for its own. <clears throat> the organ machines now cling to the body without organs as though it were a fencer's padded jacket, or as though those organ machines were medals pinned onto the jersey of a wrestler who makes them jingle as he starts toward his opponent. An attraction machine now takes place, or may take the place of a repulsion machine, a miraculating machine succeeding the paranoiac machine. But what is meant here by succeeding? To coexist, rather, and black humor does not attempt to resolve contradictions, but to make it so there are none and never were any. The body without organs, the unproductive, the unconsumable, serves as a surface for recording the entire process of production of desire, so that desiring machines seem to emanate from it, in an apparent objective movement that establishes the relationship between the machines and the body without organs. The organs are regenerated, miraculated, on the body of Judge Schreber, who attracts God's rays to himself. Doubtless, the former paranoiac machine continues to exist in the form of mocking voices that attempt to demiraculate the organs, the judge's anus in particular. But the essential thing is the establishment of an enchanting recording or inscribing surface that arrogates itself to all the productive forces and all the organs of production, and that acts as a quasi-cause by communicating apparent movement, the fetish, to them. So true is it that the schizo produces political economy, that all sexuality is a matter of economy. Let's, let's ask a question here. Um, you know, they just said previously that the socius was the surface of inscription. And now it's the body without organs. So that's a, this is a confusing moment. So let's talk about this. Okay. I, I'll, I'll take a dive. 
Uh, because you're talking about the fact that it retract it attracts and it repulses how it works, right? Yeah, but they, they, they use somewhat the same form. If you go back to what you were um, reading previously, um, they used a, a similar form to explain them both. And, you know, it's, it's always about, and further into the reading, we'll see that, you know, there's, there's quite a difference. But at this moment, it's unclear what the difference is. Um, I, I had an explanation of that, which is that whatever you take the individual as, then that's the body with. So in different cases, you're going to take the individual to be different things. So how, how I'm reading it is that the BW, so how the BW operates in my mind is that, uh, it kind of, because it is the, the body without organs, the things that Brooks is, as I'm growing as a person, as, I, as I'm experiencing life, uh, what's happening is I'm sort of territorializing or finding new shit around me all the time. The body without organs wants to have that stuff as part of it. There's a, there's, that's the attraction. So it's breaking, desiring machines connections, try to push them towards stuff and then breaking that again to make them push towards new stuff. There's a, there's a push towards that. that that's the desiring production attracts it and appropriates it for its own. It's always trying to create this sort of sur surplus value of code to show that there's value in the body without organs itself, that I want to become attracted to the idea of Brooks, uh, the body without organs version of me, not the becoming version of me. And so because of that body without organs is always attracting and repulsing at the same time, because that's kind of how it touches out into the world, grabs new stuff, you know, constantly is making us push. It's, uh, it's making new, new parts of the world, new territories, interesting and alluring at the same time that it's also trying to sort of break my current connection. Yeah, with um, miraculating machines succeeding, the paranoiac machine, um, what I think they mean is that basically, like, both are a magnet, and a magnet, of course, attracts metal. But you also have on a magnet a plus side and a minus side, which um, um, what's the opposition to attraction like which repels um, each other? So basically, the plus and the minus side switch side, but it functions still as a magnet. So like it still has the the, the function of attracting metal, but only the polarities uh, switch. So that is basically what uh, they mean by uh, the miraculous machine succeeding the paranoiac machine. Um, I'm not, so I'm, I'm hesitant to say that they mean that by succeeding to me, it's, there's a pro succeeding is so tough because a lot of Deleuze's work is uh, again about the imminence of life and this, this natural perception that is happening right now. And the thousands of layers of intensities that are happening right now, this, that moment, the, this, this one. So as we start talking about how the BWO works and we have the breaks and we have the attraction or the repulsion, they're effectively simultaneous. And so the, yes, idea, of cool. the idea of succeeding is uh, more about uh, the, the switch between them if we think about them sort of rolling past each other. So uh, if, if I never had, uh, if I'm eating and I'm having a soda, uh, the, I could just keep eating and chewing that food. At some point I stop and I take a drink. I go back to my food. 
We're talking about the literal momentary, every single decision and desire you have. This is not about grand desires. We're talking about the literal moments where I'm talking here and I'm deciding whether or not I'm going to, and then I'm choosing the words in the moment. And then I'm deciding right here, I'm going to kind of stop because I'm not sure I'm making. Yeah, but like the, 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 the function, uh, the function is eating. So if you uh, consume a drink and eat um, like a sandwich, for example, you are eating at the, at the same time. Um, but um, besides the function, you are, you are either, either like while you're e e eating, you're either like eating, uh, of course, implied drinking uh, um, your drink or uh, eat the, the sandwich, you know, and because those switch up constantly, you get like um, so, some sort of ma magnetic field, you know, basically, which you create uh, under the function of, of eating. So that is like succeeding, you know, there, there is, uh, it is not a succession. It's not a succession as if like the drink uh, uh, is a succession of the, the food of, uh, of the sandwich you consume or vice versa. Um, it's, it's like a, a succession instead of succeed, um, um, su succeeding instead of succession, uh, where it implies both at uh, the same time. But um, yeah. I, so, I so, so, so sort of. So let's say, um, let's use the eating and drinking example. As I'm switching between those, the recording that is happening, uh, which is part of the process, I, I record, I remember that I just had a bite, now I'm having a drink, now I'm having a bite. Uh, the, the, the nature of this process is stemmed from the desiring machines. Body without organs steps in and goes, excellent. I'm, I exist here to break that flow, connect to this, and then kind of make new things attractive and constantly switch that out. The assumption I make then, uh, due to the eminence of all of these things happening, is that Brooks is the one making the choice. And that Brooks is, wants to do this. Brooks wants to do these things. This is what Brooks wants to do. And, and the desire seems to come from Brooks when it doesn't. The desire comes from the desiring machines and their complex interactions that are being monitored and recorded by the body without organs. Let's, let's back up a little bit here. Um, Go ahead, Ken. One thing that ought to be kept in mind is that the body without organs is a limit concept, so it's not a thing, and so uh, and so it it can be applied in different circumstances, and so in a way it's kind of like the uh, limit concept that uh, Kant has of the thing in itself and his philosophy that is not meant to exist, but is just a limit concept so that you can think about it in different situations. And the similar to here, the body without organs is a limit concept for to lose in guitar. Well, yeah, and well, that's what I'm saying is that the, the idea of Brooks, as I see it, uh, that whatever I might have called the ego actually would be a similar thing. The, the idea of how Brooks operates is my limits of what I know I like. I like these sandwiches. I like them in this way. I eat in this way. I have these drinks. What I want is determined by that, but my 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 experience is that uh, I'm actually Ben. We're gonna have to mute you, buddy. Um, the, uh, the my my experience uh, as far as I'm I exist is that I assign that sort of a priori cause of those desires to Brooks, 
rather than the desiring machines that ultimately created them. I'm able to actually dive back in and understand that, that existence of those desiring machines. That's the cool part. But the body without organs does this cool thing where it miraculates the sort of worries and the sort of experience to a point where it seems like it's the a priori cause of my desires. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to go back to the surface thing, okay? I'm just going to give you a few, po few pointers. I think Kent like, is, is giving us like a good direction to act actually think it. At page 309, that's the end of the book. You know, we're really not there. Um, the, um, uh, the body without organs, they say it's a ultimate residue of a deteriorized socius. So, you know, it's the residue of the socius. And then if we go back to page 10, they will say, in fact, uh, is that it? Uh, in word, the socius is a full body, forms a a surface where all production is recorded. They say this on page 10. And then on page 11, they will say the body without organs, the unproductive, the unconsumable, serves as a surface for the recording. So it's I, I wanted to ask this question so we can clarify at this moment, because there's always a back and forth between those terms. And sometimes they're not specified enough or used in a way that uh, confuses uh, their meaning. Yeah, and I think we need to back up a lot to that question because it's going to help us resolve this. So it's about the functionality here. When we're talking about the, the socius as a in terms of the body without organs, we're talking about a body without organs functioning in relation to social production. So there's a change in scope here. But there's also a way in which the body without organs at this this, uh, what they're going to call the molecular level, the smaller level in a sense, or like the micro level, but it's, they're making a distinction from that. It, it is, you're absolutely right, is, is the residue of a deterritorialized socius. So they're setting up relationships here. Um, if we move deeper into what we're talking about here, the th there's some major points to understand because what both of these do is condition production, like we were saying, with the with the folding, which is the Sarah Butzer. And they do this by distributing the, um, well, and one of the ways in which it does, the body of the organs or the socius does that performs this function is to distribute the uh, energy of desiring production, which is numinous, which we'll see later um, shortly. The things they're laying out here that are really critical right now are the simultaneity that is, um, I would not put into the form of a magnet only because it tends to suggest a polarity, uh, which is to say the field concept might help resolve that. But the big thing is to talk about when when someone's drinking, right? Or more directly to use their example of Judge Schraber. As Judge Schraber is, is finding desiring machines miraculated, right? So like all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden the anus begins to work, right? So desiring production is happening here. There's also a pair, and that's a form of miraculation, right? That's the schizophrenic machine. Um, at the same time, coexisting, simultaneous, seeding in this sense, at the same time, with no, um, with, with not, not a contradiction as we normally think about it, but to talk about the simultaneity of this, there is a paranoiac machine which I think is a God here, which is working to put, um, which is working 
in terms of repulsion. So desiring machines here have avatars based on how the body without organs um, interacts with them, how it distributes the energy in terms, in terms of functionality, which will be the repulsion and the, um, and the attraction of those machines. This is all in terms of producing the surplus value of code. Ultimately, that last sentence is absolutely spot on. It's about creating the surplus value of code that seems to spout from the body without organs. Oh, it's not. Yeah, because yep, uh, yep. that that's also, um, just to go back into their empirical philosophy, you know, it, it goes back to a materialist kind of metaphysics. So, you know, nothing comes from the ether. Nothing comes from the cosmos. Like, everything is being produced by, you know, a form of infrastructure, if we want. You know, our desire is passing uh, through matter and organizes it and, you know, produces machines that are in turn producing. So it, it's never something that is being produced out there or from like a, a natural void. It's something that comes from matter as an organization of matter. I'm going to continue to the next paragraph and let's see if any questions. Production is not recorded in the same way it is produced, however, or rather, it is not reproduced within the apparent objective movement in the same way in which it is produced within the process of constitution. In fact, we have passed imperceptibly into a domain of the production of recording, whose law is not the same as that of the production of production. The law governing the latter was connective synthesis, or coupling. But when the productive connections pass from machines to the body without organs, as from labor to capital, it would seem that they then come under another law that expresses a distribution in relation to the non-productive element as the natural or divine presupposition, disjunctions of capital. Machines attach themselves to the body without organs as so many points of disjunction, between which an entire network of new syntheses is now woven, marking the surface off into coordinates like a grid, the either-or-or of the schizophrenic takes over from the and then. No matter what two organs are involved, the way in which they are attached to the body without organs must be such that all the disjunctive syntheses between the two amount to the same on the slippery surface. Whereas the either-or claims to mark decisive choices between immutable terms, this alternative, this or that, the schizophrenic either-or-or refers to the system of possible permutations between differences that always amount to the same as they shift and slide about, as is the case of Beckett's mouth that speaks and feet that walk. Quote, he sometimes halted without saying anything. Whether he had finally nothing to say or, well, having something to say, he finally decided not to say it. Other main examples suggest themselves in the mind. Immediate continuous communication with immediate redeparture. Same thing with delayed redeparture. Delayed continuous communication with immediate redeparture. Jesus Christ, my eyes. Sorry. Uh, immediate discontinuous. Doesn't matter. We'll come back and reread this. Immediate discontinuous communication with immediate redeparture. Immediate, uh, same thing with delayed redeparture. Delayed discontinuous communication with immediate redeparture. Same thing with relayed departure. That last set of sentences is like a mental Tongue twister. It's amazing. Uh, anyone want to jump in? All right, I'll try. Uh, sort of the nature of desire uh, they're talking about here. And it's interesting because the way that they talk about things is in the way desire makes decisions. 
choices, or how desire seeks things. Desire, by its sort of pure nature, doesn't really seek things in terms of one exclusively over another. I don't want to have this at the expense of this. I don't want this or that. That's not really how desire functions as a, as a thing, as a machine. Instead, it tends to sort of look at things either or or, looking at things as they're becoming, as they're, they're transitory phases, or what seemingly on the face may be logically not necessarily possible, but you have these sort of It's not about this sort of rational decision-making. We tend to ascribe desire to uh, wrongly, but we tend to say instead uh, that desire seeks multiple things at the same time, either or or, the system of possible permutations between differences that always amount to the same as they shift and slide about is a really interesting way to sort of talk about. Mm -hmm. We also yeah, need also to understand that uh, with the paranoiac there too, though, that either or, that hard either or, that's still desire and that's still the body without organs affecting um, the distribution or the recording process. It's just not rational decision making. Yeah, and here we find the criticism of Freud as you know, desire as a negative thing and deposit it as a positive thing and is not directed towards an object. It passes through. It searches for possibilities of connection or expression, if we want. Yeah, that's right. And, and what the Beckett piece does is it shows us how this is changing, even though right, the, we might say the machines, if we keep them consistent here, there's still this continuity um, in the miraculation process, right? We can see how this is all changing and changing, but we can also see like the, um, at the same time, like the paranoiac uh, in the sense of like how they, how they play upon each other. And, and, and the, the quote from Beckett, well being incredibly not fun to read aloud. And I apologize completely fucking it up uh, is such an amazing version of that idea of how desire actually functions and the sort of immediacy constantly change. Immediate discontinuous communication with immediate redeparture. And with delayed redeparture, just this sort of weird connecting constantly happening. A really, really great way of putting it. Um, one thing I want to go back to a little bit is uh, where it talks about uh, would seem then that they they then come under another law that expresses a distribution in relation to a non-productive element as a natural or divine presupposition, the disjunctions of capital. Uh, when, when they're talking about that here, the interesting, what I like about this is it's a, it's a nice quick way to talk about how uh, desiring machines as they kind of move from being actually experienced to becoming a distribution and essentially the memories of the experience where we're not actually Experiencing them. There's a very uh, memory-based recorded history sort of mentality to it. natural or divine presupposition. Very interesting twist on how uh, we come to remember desire, remember where desire came from, remember how things worked and how that gets inserted into a process. Yeah, and that's and this this form of memory is the recording upon the body without organs. So there's, there's a lot happening here just in that juxtaposition of how we normally think about memory. But yeah, it's the functions and the distribution of libidinal energy. Well, one of the things to keep in mind is this is one of the first places where they uh, they introduce connecting and disjunction. 
And so if you think of the, the body without organs as the surface of the individual, whatever the individual is, the limit concept, then uh, what's happening here is that the, uh, there's, there's, the surface is getting broken up into different things that then are connected. And then, and then those chains are uh, juxtaposed with each other. I mean, not juxtaposed, but differentiated from each other. So you have disjunctions and conjunctions forming a grid across the surface. Yeah, that, that grid, the, the grid, the, the marking of memory, the relation to each other that then becomes sort of assumed. Because again, the recordings are recorded, body without organs, organization of it assumes a relationality uh, between these things. So it's really, uh, again, the, the organization on the body without organs makes a very interesting sort of implicit a priori argument that these things are also related to each other in very specific ways. Is that kind of what you're saying, Ken? Well, one th way to think about it is like, for instance, a Turing machine has the tape. And so uh, the, the tape is finite at one end and infinite at the other end. But uh, so, so the, the, the tape is, um, you know, uh, broken up into these, these little boxes that you put values in eventually. And so, and so the, the writing in this case is the differentiation of the continuous surface into the little boxes that become the, uh, the things connected or the things uh, disjuncted from each other. And to continue that, uh, Misha's question is, uh, are these recordings permanent on the BWO? N no. Like, I, permanent is an interesting word. Are they there? Probably, yes. The recordings kind of are probably going to stick around there. But think about it as uh, recording a VHS tape over and over and over and over and over. It's also like a production of what they call strat in French. It's stratas in English, I think. So it, it, it produces stratus that would, you know, form of sedimentation, you know, if we, if we think of this as like a geological formation, because they, they take the concepts from there. Um, but it's like a form of sedimentation of, you know, articulation or, you know, forms of assemblages. In the sense, you know, like I always take the mobility, uh, you know, when you're walking, each step that you take, constitute the root but constitutes you but it it stays with you even though if it's you know it, it projects itself in the past you know you 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 do an action but this action leads to another one to another one so like we can see it that way so it uh, it allows us to see how the surface of inscription is working without having some kind of permanence of each inscription because you know they they always renew one another through you know a form of accumulation but not a form of accumulation that can be stacking without you know making like a a full edifice of stacks no stacking is a great way to put it because again the, the bw is a recording surface of everything that happens so if you have habits if you have things that you've gotten used to or your mother made you do x y and z every single day and you kind of have these weird ticks there, there is a level where it has stacked, and this is an assumption that this is you, and that memory, those recordings, are not permanent, but you've really, really, really recorded them into the body without organs. So it's a really interesting way of thinking about sort of the, uh, the geologic nature of our unconscious and how we record these things. 
Totally. Just, and just... then and then later on in the book they, they will talk about habits more as habit formation and we are as like for example humans are a species of habits. We are nothing else but habits. We are experiences that inscribe themselves into others. So you know, um when we talk about uh, walking, you learn to walk. It takes a while and then you learn you learn it, it describes itself into your body but also into your environment and then it produces more and more as you go. The more you explore a city, the more you know it, the more you dwell in it, you know. So this is a, I think this is a, the mobility example. It's an easy one to understand how uh, the body without organ can be specialized into one's existence. You know, leaving the psychic. So I'm always giving this kind of example as a secondary understanding. Oh, um, there's maybe one small thing that I still don't understand because I, I have a difficult time sometimes differentiating some of the terms. And it is these recordings, how are they different from a desire? So uh, uh, think of a desire as the as the fount, the libido, your passions. They're a thing that is very innate almost to humanity. Uh, it's a vitality you have. The recording doesn't exist as a vitality. There's no vitality there. The recording almost exists uh, to stop the vitality, tricks that vitality into doing things, tricks you into thinking that you're the thing desiring it rather than the desiring machines that are reaching out. I, I have a three-year-old you put him in a room with a bunch of toys, he's going to go from one to another to another, like without even thinking about it. At some point, I may correct him. I may set him up and say, oh, uh, this is actually the best toy. This is the one daddy likes the most. I can totally fuck with him and make him like really interested in one of them because his recording is happening where I'm rewarding him. I'm going through the process. He's experiencing this. He remembers this. He works with the same toy over and over. I can totally fuck with the kid and do that. No, I try not to. Like, it's really tough as a parent, but I try not to. Um, but the desires that he has are innate to him. His passions, the things that come out, we all have as being humans, as being alive, as being a producive, productive thing. Uh, libido as a concept is the idea of desire. Recordings exist uh, almost to stop, control, and give you a reason to believe the desire comes from elsewhere. Comes. We and okay, need that to also be makes very it, oh, careful sorry. there, though, because you're going to see in that's paragraph that um, desiring production being this flow of energy, move, libidinal energy is also a numinal energy, which is the energy of recording. So that's that's a desiring production is moving through uh, the recording process. Yeah, it's it's. Um... Think of it as a, a river that moves. Actually, a, a river on the earth is actually not a terrible. A river is going to move because of all the forces that are pushing it. The river keeps going. It finds where it can connect and how it can go. The more it goes into certain places, the further down it, it carves. And obviously, the further down it carves, the more flows are going to start going in that direction. This is kind of the same thing. The, the idea of the river, it's not so much that... Uh, well, you may look at the Grand Canyon and go, of course, water flows there. It's this massive hole in the ground. Like, no, actually, the water did that. <laughs> the water's the reason that the Grand Canyon exists, not that the Grand Canyon's there and water came after. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And, you know, um, the different examples we would, were giving, uh, we can juxtapose them. But the difference between them is the temporality in which they happen. 
you know, a river. It takes millennia to uh, to create a human body. Create like it takes seventy years to you know to make and to to undo. Uh, so like immediate desire that passes through us, you know, can be a few seconds, a few minutes. So it's always a uh, you know it's always a, a matter of temporality when it comes down to understanding th those processes. Mm. I think it's really interesting. I thank you for that. Just to go back to the recordings for one more second to understand yeah. it. Um, so the rec if the recordings are linked to things like habits and characteristics, how are they different from organs? So you're... you're so, go ahead, Jack. This is why we might want to push further into this next paragraph. But to begin an answer, the recordings, the numinous energy which is ultimately uh, desiring production in the second part of production, right, in the second part of the process, it's still working upon the, the, the organs and all that. So the recording energy, it's, it's not like the simultaneity of this flow is, is with this, um, and this is why the Sarah Butser is important, it's still working back on the connections. I'm actually going to push it, Misha, uh... I'm going to say put a pen in it. We're going to read ahead because I think the the issue you're having is something they start covering in the next couple paragraphs. We get to the end of the chapter and you still have the questions. Um, we'll we'll continue to revisit this concept for sure in the next paragraphs. But if we get to the end, let's make sure we discuss it before you leave today because I I think it's a really important point. I want to make sure I understand. Um, so I'm going to continue to the next paragraph. Thus the schizophrenic, the possessor of the most touchingly meager capital, Malone's belongings, for instance, inscribes on his own body the litany of disjunctions and creates for himself a world of parries where the most minute of permutations is supposed to be a response to the new situation or a reply to the indiscreet questioner. The disjunctive synthesis of recording therefore comes to overlap the connective synthesis of production, Process as process of production extends into the method as method of inscription. Or rather, if what we term libido is the connective labor of desiring production, it should be said that a part of this energy is transformed into the energy of disjunctive inscription, Newman. A transformation of energy, but why call this new form of energy divine? Why label it Newman? in view of all the ambiguities caused by a problem of the unconscious that is only apparently religious. The body without organs is not God, quite the contrary, but the energy that sweeps through it is divine, and it attracts to itself the entire process of production and server as its miraculate, enchanted surface, inscribing it in each and every one of its disjunctions. Hence the strange relationship that Schreber has with God, to anyone who asks, do you believe in God? We should reply in strictly Kantian or Schreberian terms. Of course, but only as the master of the disjunctive syllogism, or as its a priori principle, God defined by the omnitudo relatatus, from which all secondary realities are derived by a process of vision. <sighs> yes, it's a lot of words. Yes, it's a lot of stuff. And Misha, yes, be a little patient, not too patient. Okay. It's a really, this is, none of this book is easy. Um, I'm still kind of grasping new stuff as my reading through. Uh, would anyone like to take a crack on this one? Uh, I just want to mention the analogy with the river. 
is that, you know, when the river is constantly uh, overflowing and flooding and so forth like that, the river changes, uh, changes its course. And a lot of times it leaves little horseshoe-shaped uh, lakes that were the old course in its wake as it changes it. And, and those kinds of things would be the recording. But but also the path or the the Grand Canyon would be a recording of all the action of the river through time. Yeah, but but I'm just saying if you if you take a, a floodplain, right, you can see if you look at it from above, you'll see all of the little meanderings that have been cut off as the as the river changed, and you can see that as a recording. Mm -hmm. Totally. That that makes a lot of sense, but that does sound very linear in a temporal way, right? Yeah. So you get recordings, right? We're talking about like time in the sense of a lot of time passing, right? A series of recordings and that. This they're going to talk later on about love, but like uh, suffice to say here, with the disjunctive synthesis, right? With the the creation, uh, with the way the desiring machines. Um, have this uh, miraculating and uh, repulsive simultaneity, the way they work back on each other here. You get the distribution of functionality in this sense and the recording. So you get the body without organs investing libidinal energy into these um, avatarations and into these avatarings, I guess. Into these avatars. I don't need a gerund there. Into these avatars. And this is this is what they're getting at with recording that those investments um those investments are maintained uh, they, they don't get eradicated one of the things i their phrasing and their use of god inside of this something i worth taking a moment. um when, when they talk about and i'd love i think roger you you know you have the french translation this is there's so many little things i want at some point to but when they talk about how the body without organs is not at all, but the energy that sweeps through the BWO is divine. They talk through that. feels as though we're talking actually about the BWO and God sort of operating somewhat the same where we have BWO creates a recording surface that presupposes its own existence prior to desire, when in reality the act of desire and the process of desire has it in the same way that God exists as a created man. Um, he built man, he created us, when in reality we know quite the opposite as well. So that, that idea of this sort of religious human energy miraculating a usage of God in that sense, given their other talks of God, feels like that's lying close. Um, maybe the big thing here, they're trying to set up like, so there's a lot of juxtaposing happening with, happening with like Kant here, um, like especially with Numinous here. What they're getting at here is this, uh, the way desiring production, which during the first, synth this might help, desiring production during the first synthesis is called libidinal energy. And in that sense, we can distinguish it from the numinous energy that it becomes. But in the same sense, desiring production is the 
is is constant in these three syntheses. We we use these terms to talk about it during the syntheses and talk about how it's functioning, um, how it's functioning there, what's happening to it, what it's doing, especially. So here with the body without organs, the body without organs is like a quasi cause, right? They say. So it's not like God, and it's actually really nice here because like, in this sense, we don't have God as actually having done anything. We have God as having enabled, having um, allowed for connections and the, the distribution of the energy to allow for functionality, um, to allow for those either ors and those either or, or, ors. So in this sense, right, this is what the body of that organs actually does. When they're calling it numinous, um, they're only, well, really the, the energy is numinous here. Um, they're trying to make that point. So I, I so read I, it. I read it. I read it. I'm going to jump in. Sorry. I have to respond. I, I read their, their use of numinous. Uh, I think Ken is actually pointing at this too in the sort of Jungian, Freudian, Lacanian sense of it, where it's an energy that is more than just our, our sexual desire what libido is more of a most feverish desire that puts us in a new state that, that separates us from, uh, I would say a way to describe it would be separation from the material reality is around you with a side of, as Kent says, rapture. And there's a, there's an edge to it that numinous, I think they're using in a more cynical term than a reverent term. Um, I'm going to let Roger speak then because I think he had a point here. Oh, yeah. Just just one quick thing. Um, you know, when they talk about the divine energy, it's the divine energy of the libido. And they're referring to Kant and also referring to the relation of Judge Reber to God is to... Um, you know, says, oh, I don't really believe in God or, you know, but I, or I believe in God in, because it is uh, a priori principle. So the divine aspect of the libido would be this a priori force or a priori flux that passes through things and does the labor of connection. You know, it's, it, if you read this paragraph, like on reverse from the bottom to the top, it makes more sense. And, you know, the divine aspect is the connective force that comes before everything else. Yeah, that's, I think that works because it, we're, we're calling it divine because it appears that way. But it's, it's the body without organs in this sense, right? The libidinal energy transforms into the numinous. And because of how we talked about like the fold earlier, the uh, transformation is possible. So, right, production um, can be put in service of like the body without organs here so as to produce that surplus value as opposed to production just staying in the producing stage so nothing's really you know the process isn't uh, going anywhere body without organs is what creates this folding but and i and i think uh, the, the last sentence where they talk about god the god we sure but only as the master of the disjunctive syllogism or as it's a priori principle like parentheses, God defined as uh, the omnitudo relatatus, which is everything. Literally, that's what that means. All of reality, everything. Um, and um, yeah, and then, you know, they, they, they say realities are derived by a process of division. So we must remember that in the philosophy of Deleuze, with 
with the a priori uh, or you know one of the the, the the fundamental thing is you know the univocal um, sense of being and how differentiation works into producing what we see or what we experience or like what what constitute the real so this is the libido going through this univocal being expressing itself uh, creating differentiation and disjunctions to just get it right disjunctions are about the the opposing of the break of connection correct the disjunctive synthesis is the break of the connection jack um it's what the connect it's how these connections and the desire machines what they're going to do right so this is why the repulsion and the miraculation matter so much the repulsive um aspect right um is going to affect what these desire machines are doing. So they give the example of like God um, trying to get uh, the the anus machine, which is miraculating for Schreber, to stop miraculating, right? So we've got production and anti-production really clearly there, right? We've got a process of production that is simultaneously pushing forward and trying to stop itself, but not in terms of a contradiction that can be resolved. It's, it's simultaneous in this sense. It's succeeding in the sense that it's um, cooperative. Okay. I had to ask because uh, I read the first sentence. Very good. Right. I'm going to jump to the next paragraph. Could I say? Please. So the, uh, the, the, the connections are and, 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 and. The, 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 dis, uh, yeah, the disjunctions are or, 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 or. So. It's kind of like uh, the and, 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 and creates a series, and then the or, or, or will juxtapose these series to each other to create a grid. It creates divisions. The, the disjunctive, disjunctive syllogism creates difference. But, but orthogonal difference. Correct, yes. It, it coordinates so as to allow for functionality in service of the body without organs, right? whatever it wants, whatever it basically has them do. Right, but that assumes difference. Yes, because you can't desiring machines need differential relations. Yes. What one way to one to th one way to think about it is that like uh, if you have a grid being produced, it's like a uh, a dissipative structure, a la Prigogine, that's that spreads across that surface. All right, uh, I'm going to dive into the next paragraph now. Hence the soul thing that is divine is the nature of an energy of disjunctions. Graeber's divine is inseparable from the disjunctions he employs to divide himself up into parts, earlier empires and later empires, later empires of a superior god and those of an inferior god. Freud stresses the importance of these disjunctive syntheses in Schreber's delirium in particular, but also in delirium as a general phenomenon. Quote, a process of decomposition of this kind is very characteristic of paranoia. Paranoia decomposes just as hysteria condenses, or rather, paranoia resolves once more into their elements the products of the con condensa condensations and identifications which are affected in the unconscious. Quote, but why does Freud thus add that, on second thought, hysterical neurosis comes first and that disjunctions appear only as a result of the projection of a more basic primordial condensed material? 
Doubtless, this is a way of maintaining intact the rights of Oedipus and the god of delirium in the schizoparanoiac recording process. And for that very reason, we must pose the most far-reaching question in this regard. Does the recording of desire go by way of the various stages in the formation of the Oedipus complex? Disjunctions are the form that the genealogy of desire assumes. But is this genealogy Oedipal? Is it recorded in the Oedipal triangulation? Is it not more likely that Oedipus is a requirement or a consequence of social reproduction, insofar as this latter aims at domesticating a genealogical form and content that are in every way intractable? For there is no doubting the fact that the schizo is constantly subjected to interrogation, constantly cross-examined. Precisely because his relationship with nature does not constitute a specific pole, the questions put to him are formulated in terms of the existing social code. Your name, your father, your mother. In the course of his exercises in desiring production, Beckett's Malloy is cross-examined by a policeman. Your name is Malloy, said the sergeant. Yes, I said. Now I remember. And your mother, said the sergeant. I didn't follow. Is your mother's name Malloy too, said the sergeant. I thought it over. Your mother, said the sergeant. Is your mother's? Let me think, I cried. At least I imagine that's how it was. Take your time, said the sergeant. His mother's name Malloy. Very likely, her name must be Malloy, too, I said. They took me away, to the guard room, I suppose. There I was told to sit down. Must have tried to explain. I like Beckett. Do a reading of Beckett and Lit Jack. We did read um, Crap's last tape. It's not quite as funny as uh, as uh, Malloy, but it is, it is a pretty good play. So, uh, who would like to do a breakdown of this one? Anyone chomping at the bit, or... Let's start out with what's happening here with Freud and the paranoiac, because this is a very loaded term, especially in any relationship with um, psychological discourse, right? A process of decomposition of this kind is... A, uh, Freud stresses the importance of these disjunctive syntheses in Schreber's delirium in particular, but also in delirium as a general phenomenon. Quote, a process of decomposition of this kind is very characteristic of paranoia. Paranoia decomposes just as hysteria condenses. Or rather, paranoia resolves once more into the, their elements, the products of the conden condensations and identifications, which are affected in the unconscious. So right here we're talking, because they seem to basically agree with this, right? that um, Freud is understanding the importance of the disjunctive syntheses and the paranoiac um, repulsion here. Uh, and, and in this sense, with the paranoiac repulsion, the exclusive disjunction, the either or, right? The hard either or, this or that, um, and this or that function. So this decomposition in this sense, right? We're talking about how, uh, as opposed to the schizophrenic production where all these possibilities of connection, right? Are, are taking place. The paranoiac here is condensing possibility, right? The distribution of libidinal energy is to serve these uh, two functionalities, right? This or that, and to affect um, production in that manner. Yeah, I, I'd like to add something as well um, that uh, Freud uh, like basically diagnosed Hysteria, hysterical neurosis, as is said in paragraph. Um, he did that because 
hysterical neurosis is like the baseline. Above that, there is an, a narcissistic element uh, to paranoia for Freud. So if you see that Schaeper is paranoia, Freud goes like, okay, this is hysterical neurosis, and then he goes, um, it's a narcissistic uh, trait of the illness because uh, it is nar nar narcissistic. Um, be, because like uh, the conscience for Freud, like right and wrong, that kind of conscience is uh, what makes um, the, the people in his head talk, basically. So Schreber uh, uh, voices, that is, uh, uh, according to Freud, his um, conscience is right and wrong, which is um, a narcissistic trait. And then he traces that back to hysterical uh, neurosis, while uh, Deleuze Quattari say this is uh, social reproduction. Yeah, I'll, I'll just be really brief and I'll turn over the mic. But that's very important because there's no primary neurosis here. There's no DOS thing or there's no um, hysteria in the sense that you're talking about. The body without organs enables a paranoiac process. And just like it enables a schizophrenic process. And these two coexist, right? Co-mingle, play upon each other, all part of these functionalities and disjunctions. But it's not in relation to... Um, to a primary narcissism or a dosting. Well, and the entire discussion here, and it's really when they start bringing up Oedipus in a book called Anti-Oedipus, uh, not bad to start in this section, I guess. I, they, they begin having this conversation where they're like, look, that like Jack's saying, firing machines, when they hit the body without organs, they, they, it's a creation of paranoia. It starts playing in that. And as things are sort of aligned on this grid and Divided up in this process of desire against the body without organs, repulsed. Uh, the, they're posing the question in opposition to the classic Freudian idea, and one that even Lacan played with, which is that Oedipus is ultimately this poor triangulation of how we really form ourselves and how we exist with society. That my relationship with my mother, my father, and myself uh, is ultimately how I am made good or bad, paranoiac, schizo, whatever. And their argument here is, uh, and it's the first time they formed it, it's not going to be the last time, uh, where they say, well, what if, hey, what if Oedipus is actually just like that BWO shit and is triangulating things? We're forcing people to basically put themselves inside of this system, inside of these coordinates, and pretend that that's where desire comes from when really it's much beyond that. Schizo, their example of Malloy is great, and I love Malloy. Um, for example, Malloy is great because this is the, the scene where he's, he's being arrested, the sergeant's yelling at him, and he has no, no clue. Basically, your name is Malloy, what's your mother's name? He's like, what the fuck's my mom got to do with this, is kind of the entire point there. It's like, what? Why? what? Why are you trying to force me to triangulate myself in terms of the Oedipus, in terms of the, the Oedipal? And that's uh, really what they're trying to get at here. We cannot say that psychoanalysis is very innovative in this respect. It continues to ask its questions and develop its interpretations from the depths of the Oedipal Triangle as its basic perspective, even though today it is acutely aware that this frame of reference is not at all adequate to explain so-called psychotic phenomena. The psychoanalyst says we must necessarily discover Schreber's daddy beneath his superior god, and doubtless also his elder brother beneath his inferior god. 
At times, the schizophrenic loses his patience and demands to be left alone. Other times, he plays along with the whole game and even invents a few tricks of his own, introducing his own reference points in the model put before him, undermining it from within. Yes, I know, that's my mother all. But my mother is a Virgin Mary, you know. One can easily imagine Trevor answering Freud, Yes, I quite agree. Naturally, the talking birds are young girls, and the superior god is my daddy, the inferior god my brother. But little by little, he will surreptitiously reimpregnate the series of young girls with all talking birds, his father with the superior god and his brother with the inferior god, all of them divine forms that become complicated, or rather, desimplified, as they break through the simplistic terms and functions the Oedipal Triangle. Sarto puts it, I don't believe in father and mother. Got no pappy mummy. Desiring, uh, is that the end of the paragraph? That looks Correct. Excellent. Uh, very short, and then anyone can give their commentary on this. Uh, this, again, this is a very timely piece, so we have to think back a number of years, but it's still very prevalent today in classic therapy psychoanalytic sessions i've had to go through a decent amount of therapy myself i the relationship with your parents is the number one thing and they talk about this dive in even not even psychoanalysis claim to be freudian it's really a shocking thing everyone has this conversation and it's very much the way we talk about things in general and so the the laugh here is if you actually get to the point where someone's willing to admit oh yeah no no that's definitely my dad and that's definitely uh, the, the, yep, that's my mom. They'll, yep. At, actually, at some point, they will switch it back around and they'll go, well, yeah, but you know, my mom, my mom's actually God. My dad's really God. This, and it's the, the, the nature of these things sort of continues to flip around thanks to the way that the functive uh, syllogism, how I understand. But isn't it also to make a point about how, therefore, it loses its value completely? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, Oedipus doesn't have any value to them, for sure. Um, and, and, Careful there. Oh, God damn it. They, they never say Oedipus doesn't exist. They only, they're taking away the triangulation to always have everything necessitated as Oedipus, to make Oedipus a kind of BWO. Yes, where, where Oedipus organizes our life and we should rearrange ourselves based on it. Oedipus does exist as a thing. Like, there is a, a reality to that as a disorder or even a thing that you play with, but it is not the literal triangulation of subjectivity. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's really it, right? Because what the Malloy thing shows, what the Artaud thing shows, these excerpts, is that the schizophrenic process doesn't even have the central point of the, of the mother, right? Malloy doing these things isn't in reference to his mother. He's not even really sure who she is, right? Um, this is really critical, right? Because Oedipus, what they're getting at here is the creation of an Oedipal recording, right? So uh, to, to uh, in this sense, right, I don't want to walk this too much further out because it's going to get complicated. In this sense, Oedipus here would affect the disjunctive synthesis, right? And change how production is happening so as to try and triangulate it, right? So in this sense, the paranoia schizophrenic are trying to be housed in the Oedipal, but Deleuze and Guattari are making it clear that even though Oedipus is possible, it's not necessary. All right. So All right. and then and then we can see from this how um, 
Deleuze and Guattari um, are inscribing themselves into a departure from structuralism. Because structuralism, you know, coming from uh, Lévi-Strauss, for example, it's to um, show the elementary uh, structures of society or, you know, how society functions. So there's the whole... Um, the whole models of the family, how the family works with the father, the mother, the brother of the mother, and how it structures our relationships. So basically, you know, uh, structuralism posited um, some some forms uh, that were templates for how reality would unfold. But what they're saying is not that, is that because we are creating those models and those forms that we are inferring um, that society works that way. So we are producing uh, society in reality according to those models, but they're not produ- products of the models, you know? So it becomes like a, a recursive kind of movement. We modelize and then the model reproduces us. Desiring production forms a binary linear system. The full body is introduced as a third term in the series without destroying, however, the essential binary linear nature of this series. One, two. Etc. The series is completely refractory to a transcription that would transform and mold it into a specific, specifically ternary and triangular schema such as Oedipus. The full body without organs is produced as anti-production. That is to say, it intervenes within the process as such for the sole purpose of rejecting any attempt to impose on it any sort of triangulation, implying that it was produced by parents. How could this body have been produced by parents when it's its very nature is such eloquent witness of its own self-production, of its own engendering of itself. And it is precisely here on this body, right where it is, that the Newman is distributed, disjunctions are established, independent of any sort of production. Yes, I have been my father, and I have been my son. I, Antonin Artaud, as my son, my father, my mother, and myself. The schizo has his own system of coordinates for situating himself at his disposal, because, first of all, he has at his disposal his very own recording code, which does not coincide with the social code or coincides with it only in order to parody it. The code of delirium, or of desire, proves to have an extraordinary fluidity. It might be said that the schizophrenic passes from one code to the other, that he deliberately scrambles all the codes, by quickly shifting from one another, according to the questions asked him, never giving the same explanation from one day to the next never invoking the same genealogy, never recording the same event in the same way. When he is more or less forced into it and is not in a touchy mood, he may even accept the banal Oedipal Code, so long as he can stuff it full of the disjunctions that this code was designed. Take a crack. I just wanted uh, to say that, like, this uh, certainly the, the second half of the paragraph is probably a better explanation of uh, the Sartarian concept of bad faith that Sartre uh, gives himself. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just enjoy it, basically. I don't have any uh, notes. Yeah, and uh, I mean, just a quick sort of recap, the idea of the binary linear system, uh, the desiring production forms the system as it consists of Coupling machines, one after the other, two-fold movement moves between desiring machines and organ machines. Two gets an actual connection between organ machine and an energy machine. One refers to those moments in which the organ machine is not plugged into any 
rather attached to the BWO even. It's a really interesting sort of, again, talking about how desiring structure works against Freudian concept that they're talking about. It's a really complex paragraph, actually. Is there any conception of um, uh, this, the scrambling or the shifting being limited by circumstances? Is there any notion of that in, 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 in with Deleuze? A um, couple things there. The schizophrenic is not a person, and it's not so far as consciousness. So everything here in the schizophrenic process is contextual. Um, so if, if by what you mean by circumstances, like, is one limited by what they can do? Yes, but for the unconscious here, the schizophrenic process um, is contextualized, right? So it's happening in relation to the machines. And in that sense, it's happening in relation to the, invest the previous investments, the recordings. And the scrambling of codes here works with desiring production. So the schizophrenic scrambles those codes. So even something like Oedipus and Oedipal code, right, and Oedipal functionality, the schizophrenic sort of cuts through that, but it also cuts through other codes, but not as a person, as a process. Yeah, it's 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 because as as Kent was saying, the the schizo codes sort of exist as differentiation, as separation. The way that the schizo work is not either or, but it's and 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 the combinations and the way that the schizo process has no single code, no setup, no sort of direct linear, hyperlinear genealogy or triangulation. Uh, every, all the desires are constantly shifting really based on contextual reality for the schizo at any given moment. So there's a, there's a genuine uh, outward connection that's constantly happening in a million times a second for the schizo. But the paranoiac very much is instead looking for codes that can fit as it understands its body without organs. Also, it is basically um, another um, Freudian critique in that they say that Freud, um, which I think Sartre did as well, um, uh, Freud only treated the ego. Uh, well, they say um, he treated the ego, but not the, the schizo of, uh, or the schiz or the schizophrenic. Yeah, this is true. Uh, it, Freud's entire methodology, they, they do spend a great time mocking. You'll hear often, I'll make the comment or someone else will, I think this is where they're being kind of dicks. And they do this a lot. They have this sarcastic French side to them. It's tough to tell when they're being sarcastic and kind of thumbing their nose at various people because of their writing. They're doing it here for sure. This is definitely a, yeah, we don't. This, the schizo, of course the schizo will engage with Oedipus. He'll, he'll relax and do it. Then he'll turn it inside out because it's pointless. It doesn't work for him. It's kind of like, yeah, of course he'll do it. Duh. But of course he'll fuck with it. It's a... It's this schizophrenic desire overloads Oedipus. Oedipus can't contain it. I'll continue to the last uh, paragraph and then we'll discuss. Uh, and I included an image in the chat of Adolf Wolfley. Uh, phenomenally interesting art. I haven't seen it. Adolf Wolfley's drawings reveal the workings of all sorts of clocks, turbines, dynamos, celestial machines, house machines, and so on. These machines work in a connective fashion, from the perimeter to the center in successive layers or segments. But the explanations that he provides for them, which he changes as often as the mood strikes him, 
are based on genealogical series, constitute the recordings of each of his drawings. What is even more important, the recording process affects the drawings themselves, showing up in the form of lines standing for catastrophe or collapse that are so many disjunctions surrounded by spirals. The schizo maintains a shaky balance for the simple reason that the result is always the same. No matter what the disjunctions, although the organs machines attach themselves to the body without organs, the latter continues nonetheless to be without organs and does not become an organism in the ordinary sense of the word. It remains fluid and slippery. Agents of production, likewise, alight on Schreber's body and cling to it. Sunbeams, for instance tracks, which contain thousands of tiny spermatozoids, sunbeams, birds, voices, nerves, all enter into changeable and genealogically complex relationships with God and forms of God, derived from the Godhead by division. But all this happens and is all recorded on the surface of the body without organs. Even the copulations of the agents, even the divisions of God, even the genealogies marking it off into squares like a grid and their permutations. The surface of this uncreated body swarms with them. The lion's mane swarms with fleet. And again, paranoiac disjunctions and schizophrenic disjunctions, we still don't have a good and evil here. These are all functionalities that the body without organs um, is enabling. When Woofley's paintings being brought up here is, uh, I didn't quite get it the first time uh, around. I'm really understanding now is the... The nature of the schizophrenic process is actually connection. Paranoiac process is a little bit more of the division disjunctive. And Adolf Wolfley's paintings are literally about everything being connected and touching into each other, giant machines of things. Like it's, it's, he doesn't have space. There's no blank space. And I think anything he's ever made. Um, so it's kind of incredible to bring him up as an example of that. Machines work in a connective fashion from the perimeter to the center in successive layers or segments. This is how the schizo mind works. It's, oh, it's not just either or. It's not, oh, this is connected to that. That's connected only to that. It's like, no, how about all of these things? End, 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 end. Mm -hmm. The schizophrenic process is definitely the, these continual couplings and the ors, right? But again, with the paranoiac, it's still part of that in the sense of like this or that, a flower or a mountain, right? Yes, yes. All right, any questions at this point? Misha, do you have any, any last questions? Yes, for sure. Um, uh, I, I actually, if, if you allow me, I'd like to return to the question earlier. Um, and that is because I, th I think it's still confusing me a little bit because actually this last part to me was very clear. Okay. Uh, the, the, mo the most clear so far. Can you restate the question? Uh, yeah, and that is the body without organs has recordings on it and in which way does it still distinct itself from a body with organs when it has all the marks that looks like organs and if it talks like organs if it walks like organ organs it's probably an organ okay so the, this is the difference their terminology they use specifically is body without organs and full body uh full body would be what we might call a body with organs is the, the actual working collective that is actually you. Uh, body without organs is the thing you imagine you are, not, not through projection, not projection, but it's the 
over time, as you have experiences and intensity of those things, the reality of those things are recorded in the literal momentary, literally every moment that you're able to experience and record and go back and back. back. Uh, that is, uh, on its, as it goes, creates recordings. This recording process happens on the BWO, the, we'll call it the Misha. Now, you as a human, as a becoming human, aren't really Misha. Have that name. Works, we have called you that, but you've determined over time that Misha is because of the recording process and because of all the, uh, the person who's going to join this talk. And to talk a certain way, you're going to ask questions, you're going to be bold enough, you're not going to be shy, all of these different things because it's what your body without organs is. Your actual full body is all of the organs put together. The BWO doesn't have organs. The full body is the collective of all of those things in reality. Is how I but is a full would body then. Is the full body then just, or at least is is the full body basically body without organs with all the recordings, or is there even more? It, without the body without organs, body without organs is not part of the full body. I don't think. Is that Roger? You might know better. I slipped for a few seconds. Sorry. <laughs> Um, no, just, your, your passage is the answer, though, Roger, the one you quoted. Although the organ machines attach themselves to the body without organs, the latter, body without organs, continues nonetheless to be without organs. It does not become an organism in the ordinary sense of the word. It remains fluid and slippery, whereas a full body is the organism. I think uh, in that sense, my question would be, why? Well, because the... so I. Why, why, is, the why recording are the recordings surface not is... tainting the, the, the body without organs? So the recording surface, right, is the body without organs kind of pushing back on the, uh, the desiring machines in this sense. So, right, the, the desiring machines are trying to break into, um, into the body without organs. They're, they're going to um, be unsuccessful here. The surface, right, and we've got to be careful here because even though we're they say it has coordinates like a grid, but it's a fluidity, or, or more so, it's um, sort of amorphous. So it's not going to be a very neat thing. But what's happening here is that as these things connect, right, in relation to the body without organs, they're not actually going to organize the body without organs. And so then uh, there, I have a, another question that is maybe a bit too vague, but... Um... In what sense is the body without organs not something transcendental then? So it's the body without organs is imminent in this sense because it's okay. Let's take the okay. This is this is the confusing part, and those are important questions uh, that goes beyond the the, the text. But um, when they um, when Deleuze and Guattari, mostly Deleuze, would say, you know, it's a philosophy of eminence, but it's the transcendent. The transcendence of the eminent plane. Uh, so, so, so the eminence become the transcendent. So the, the the transcendence comes from this organization at you know at the surface level at the bottom. You know how intensities are arising and organizing themselves instead of like going from a principle that actually transcends and create you know the material or reality. Yes, okay, actually, yeah, that makes sense. I, I love this line of questioning because it's been one I've been confused on trying to figure out. This is almost say, uh, trying 
Just like they're trying to give a, a materialist or machinic view of the unconscious or materialist psychoanalysis, we're kind of almost talking also about a materialist transcendence. Not, yes, that's also not, where not to be a dick, not to be a dick about words, but like that's kind of hilarious that I can put those words together, and I think more than one person here understood what I'm trying to say. Oh, totally, because it's it's flux and matter that be it's being organized in their connections, so it becomes like a you know like you say like a transcendence of like a materialist transcendence uh you know a more philosophically academic person would say well that's totally wrong but you know we get what you're saying when you're expressing it in that oh no manner. there's there's a reason i wouldn't do well in college classes for this uh, that would not go over well with the professor but that would then follow because i really like that explanation roger thank you because a lot of what they're doing here when they're talking about oedipus or psychoanalysis this entire book effectively is getting us to say, okay, uh, take a step back and not look at these things as being intrinsic to us, but instead, let's talk about where all of these concepts come from. Desiring machines, they come from this eminence, they come from this weird spot that is the fount, rather than these transcendental, larger scale ideas that you believe are, are transferring from person. And that would even imply that that's the case with EWO, with anything that seems to be transcendental, or even their transcendental properties of eminence, they're still saying, look, transcendental, maybe, but it's it's coming from this imminent spot, this this magic crazy place. It's it's a really now that's definitely something I've been wondering about. Thank you, Misha. Did that answer your question at all? Uh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think it's something that I still will struggle with in the future, um f from a just comprehension level, but I, I got all the answers that I was looking for. Well, I would recommend because so this flows into uh, one of our other readings. Oh, real quick, let me close out. Uh, I'm going to close out the recording. Uh, thank all of you for joining. See you next week.